We're in Luke chapter 15, um, and uh, maybe you're still making your way there. Let me introduce the text this way. Uh, There's a a true story that's told about a guy named Fiorella uh, LaGuardia. How's that for a mouthful of a name? Fiorella LaGuardia. Um, The name should sound familiar. We think of LaGuardia Airport in New York, and Fiorella LaGuardia was the mayor of New York City back during the days of the Depression. And he was a character. He used to uh, go and uh, he'd show up at the fire department and want to go on calls with the fire department and actually, you know, go in and fight fires and and things and get his volunteer firefighter uh, urge satisfied. And um, he would randomly show up at orphanages throughout New York City and he'd take the whole orphanage, you know, to a Yankees game or or whatever, just a, uh, you know, benevolent guy. And, and occasionally, he would go to night court, and he would give the judge the night off, and he would sit on the bench, and he would hear the cases in night court. And, uh, and so, uh, one night in particular, he did that, gave the judge the night off, and they bring in this little old lady who's sobbing. And she obviously has never been in this situation before. Um, she was arrested for shoplifting a loaf of bread. And, uh, and as I said, this happened during the days of the Depression. Her story is really sad. Her daughter, her husband had, had abandoned her and her kids. She, she was now living, you know, with her mom. And, and the grandma basically told the judge in tears, look, I, this isn't me. I'm not really a thief, but I, but I had no other choice. I had to, to feed my grandbabies. And, uh, and we're starving. And so, so this is why I did this. And the judge, you know, he, he looks over, the mayor looks over at the shopkeeper who's angrily there, and he's pressing charges. And he's like, come on, man. A loaf of bread? You're going to press charges on this gal? And he goes, look, uh, Your Honor, if I, if I don't press charges, um, you know, this is just going to continue. People are nickel and diming me. It's, it's, it's a depression, and I'm getting, people are stealing from me, and I've got to make an example of this girl. And so... This woman, and so the judge looks at the woman and he says, ma'am, you know, the, the law doesn't give me any other choices. Um, you've admitted your guilt, and, uh, and so it's either 10 days in jail or it's a $10 fine. And so he drops the gavel down. He says, I fine you $10. But then he reaches into his wallet and he pours out, pulls out a $10 bill and he puts it down. And he says, I'm going to pay your fee for you. And everybody starts to clap and he stops everybody. He says, no, I'm not done. He says, I'm going to fine every last person in this courtroom 50 cents for living in a city where a poor old woman has to steal to feed her grandkids, you know? Yeah, yeah, right? Great story, right? And so, yeah, this is the response that everybody, the bailiff goes around and, and, you know, the policemen are kicking in, you know, 50 cents a piece. The lawyer's kicking in 50 cents a piece. Uh, I could go off on that one. Anyway, uh, the, the, all the different criminals kicking in 50 cents a piece. By the time he gets done, he collects $47.50, gives it to this, this now sobbing old woman, and everybody's applauding for the privilege of having been fined 50 cents a person. Now, it's a beautiful story. It's a true story. Um, And it's a perfect story to illustrate where we're at in Luke chapter 15 because the big idea of our text today is God's incredible love and grace and mercy for sinners. And, you know, Mayor LaGuardia, his act was loving. It was gracious. It was merciful. Um, But really, it was reactive. And, And what our text shows us is that God is loving, gracious, and merciful but he's proactive in his love. And so, uh, beautiful setup for what is the beautiful heart of God that we see here. Luke chapter 15, verse 1, Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to hear him, Jesus, uh, 
and um, drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And notice here at the outset, we've got four categories of people uh, broken into two groups. We've got the tax collectors and the sinners, and we've got the Pharisees and we've got the scribes. Now, tax collectors reviled and hated in this day and age, and some things never change, right? Some things stand the test of time. But they were particularly hated in the days, in Jesus' day, because tax collectors worked for Rome. Rome was the occupiers of Jerusalem, and so the people resented having to pay taxes to Rome uh, just at the face of it, but they doubly resented the, the tax collectors because Rome basically told these tax collectors, go ahead, collect for us. This is how much we want you to collect. But anything you get over and above that, you can keep for yourself. And so the, and most often the tax collectors were Jewish citizens. And so the people saw them as traitors and as crooks. You remember the story of Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector. And God radically tra- saved him. He you know, met Jesus and, and, and delivered and saved. And his first act was to say, man, the people I've wronged, I'm gonna, wronged, I'm going to repay fourfold. Well, why? Well, because he'd wronged a lot of people and he had to repay you know, people to what he had really stolen from them. So people hated, they hated tax collectors. Well, as well, we have tax collectors and the text tells us we have uh, sinners. Now, sinners is kind of a junk drawer term. Uh, and it's a catch-all, and basically, this included everybody that was hated by the scribes and the Pharisees. And the scribes and the Pharisees, they basically lumped people into one of two categories. You were either uh, somebody who was righteous, or you were somebody in their eyes that was unrighteous. Um, And so their whole attitude was, you're either clean or you're unclean. And they lived in complete separation from anybody that they saw as being unclean, anybody who didn't keep the religious law as they prescribed that they should keep the law. And this separation was pretty extreme. Uh, If a Pharisee was walking down the street and they met a sinner on the street, they wouldn't even touch them. In fact, sometimes they would even cross the street to go around them. They wanted no touching and no interaction. They wanted nothing to do with the people that they considered to be unclean. And some rabbis took this so seriously that they refused even to teach him God's word. There was a saying during this time, let not a man associate with the wicked, not even to bring him the law. And so they hated people with a pure hatred. They wouldn't even bring him God's word. The one thing that people need, uh, the only hope of being made right with God, and they would say, no, you're out, You're, you're, you're done. And so it's no wonder then that we see the people who flock to Jesus, well, they're the tax collectors and the sinners. They're the ones that have been marginalized by society. They're the, the ones which, which religion wants nothing to do with, but they flock to Jesus. Why? Well, because Jesus is proclaiming the gospel of love. He's proclaiming the gospel of forgiveness and of inclusion and of, forg- of, of being made right with God. And so, man, that's, that's, that's attractive, Jesus would say in Matthew's gospel, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy burdens, and and I will will give you rest. And the Lord says the same thing to us today. By the way, maybe you're here, and a lot of times we'll encounter people, and oh, you know, I'm just, 
uh, you know, I've done too much. And they're under the impression that God wants nothing to do with them. That's not true. That's not true. God loves you. And, and, and God desperately wants to, to meet you in the place where you are. As a matter of fact, you know, the, the, the Lord um, perhaps here revealing that you've come here today just hanging on by a thread. Man, I, I got to hear from God today. You know, I'm, I'm coming and, and I have to hear from God today. And God would say to you today, I love you. I love you. There's nothing you can do to separate yourself from my love. I love you. And, and it's not that, you know, you've got to clean yourself up to come to God. You know, Satan is such a cruel enemy. He'll tempt you to sin, and the moment that you fall into sin, then he piles right on, and he starts, you know, bringing c- condemnation. Listen, condemnation does not come from God. Conviction comes from God. He, he wants us to be convicted of our sin. He wants us to turn to him, cry out to him. But condemnation comes from the devil. It comes from the enemy. And, 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 and so... This is, this is the thing. People are like, oh, what a great message. One of love and one of forgiveness and one of hope. And it's not one of, hey, you got to clean yourself up to come and be accepted here. Um, because religion offers none of that. Religion doesn't offer love and acceptance and hope. Relationship with Jesus does. Now, in contrast, here we got this other group. We've got the Pharisees and the scribes, and these are the religious legalists. They hate Jesus, hate his message. They hate everything he stands for. And so the sinners, the tax collectors, they're drawing to hear a message of hope and forgiveness and love. But the Pharisees and the scribes, why are they coming? Well, they're gathering together to find fault with Jesus. They want to find fault. They want to find some way in which he'll slip up, something they can hang him with. That's what they're endeavoring to do. And so verse 3, Jesus addresses them. It says, so he, Jesus, spoke this this parable to them, them meaning the scribes and the Pharisees. That's who he's primarily addressing here. Um, And by the way, a parable. It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And what we're going to see here is Jesus is about to tell three parables to this group of people. And so he, he, spoke, he speaks this parable to them, this first one. He says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? Now the picture here isn't that the, the shepherd, this is a picture of the Lord, it's not a picture that he abandons the ninety-nine. Certainly it says he leaves them in the wilderness, but what was common practice in this day if you were a shepherd was that you would tend to your sheep and in the evening time you would create a pen, you would create a safe area out there in the wilderness where your flocks were and you would gather your flocks together and it would be at that time where you would do a head count, you know, and just make sure, hey, is everybody here? We go to, to Israel on, a, on an Israel tour and, you know, we all get back in the bus and you've got somebody designated, count heads, we don't leave anybody behind, you know, as we move on. And so the same thing, you bring them together, you count the heads and it was in this kind of environment where the shepherd would recognize, well, one's missing. And so the, the implication here isn't that he bailed on the 99. No, they're, they're taken care of. But now what's he do? He goes out after the one which is lost, Jesus says, until he finds it. Verse 5, and when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep which was lost. 
And then verse 7, I say to you that likewise, and here's the key, this is what he wants the guys to get. I say to you that likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Jesus here, he's talking to the religious leaders and he's saying, you have to get the big idea. You got to see the love of God, the love of God. I want you to see how God operates and the motive for which he operates. And so what Jesus is doing here, as I said, he's going to tell three parables, three stories. And in these three stories, he's beginning to share two heartfelt joys that God has for mankind. Two heartfelt joys that God has for mankind. Number one, the joy of finding. And number two, the joy of returning. Let's jump in, the joy of finding. So he tells this first parable. We've got the shepherd who represents God, and we have the sheep that represents the lost. Now, I don't know if you are familiar with sheep or the, tac- the, 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 the behaviors of sheep. Actually, in our Saturday night service, I had a guy who owned some sheep and was you know, telling me some things about them. You need to understand that sheep by nature are stinky, they're stubborn, and they're stupid. That is, that's a sheep, right? <laughs> he, the, the guy on Saturday night would also tell me they're also the sweetest, lovable animals you ever want to see. But they're stinky, they're stubborn, and they're stupid. I was doing some research online, and I read uh, about, I, I don't know, I guess the, the name is Rancher? I, I don't know. Do you, you call him? Anyway, the guy owns, you know, a bunch of sheep. And, and he's talking about the nature of sheep, and he says there's three levels of stupidity in this world. There's dumb, there's dumber, and then there's sheep, you know. <laughs> and, you know, and so you go searching through, and you find examples of that. For instance, the BBC in 2005 reported that 1,500 sheep all walked off a cliff to their death in Turkey. Um, what happened? Well, the first sheep walked off the cliff, and the 1,499 behind him followed him right over. You know, it, it, it was crazy. You know, your, your mom, she would say to you, uh, hey, if everybody jumped off a bridge, would you jump off a bridge? The sheep would say, yeah, I'll do that. Now, in truth, the 1,500 sheep, they didn't all die. The first couple of hundred died when they fell off, and all the rest of them fell on top of their dead buddies, and they made it. You know, they had cushioned their fall. So sad, isn't it? They're just, they're just dumb. And here's the problem. What do sheep do? They eat. This is what sheep do. If you remember your history, back in the 1800s, cattle ranchers lost their mind because people would bring sheep out, and the sheep would eat up all the available grass. So they just continue to eat. You put them in a field, they'll eat and eat and eat and eat until there ain't nothing left there. And then what do they do? They go looking for more things to eat. And all the while, they're vulnerable to predators and, because they got their head down. They're vulnerable to getting lost. Why? Because they got their head down. It's just like, eat, eat, eat. And then they wander off. Adam Clark, in his commentary, he says this, No creature strays more easily than a sheep. None is more heedless, none so incapable of finding its way back to the flock. When once gone astray, it will bleat for the flock and still run on in the opposite direction. This I have often noticed. Now, how many of you, let's be honest, can relate to this sheep? You go in, you go in the wrong direction, you're stuck on stupid, and then all of a sudden you're like, you know, 
oh, I, I just, I don't like where, I want to go back, I want things to get good, but you're still going in the opposite direction. It's just a picture of us in our sinful flesh and in, in, in our sinful nature. And the point is, we are just like the sheep. We are. We're prone to wander, we're prone to be led by our appetites, and, and we're vulnerable to predators. And this is where God comes in. Isaiah the prophet says this, he says, all of us like sheep have strayed away. We've left God's paths to follow our own, and yet the Lord laid on him, Jesus Christ, the sins of us all. And so, whereas the religious leaders, they demanded, hey, you know what? Clean up your act. We don't want nothing to do with you, sinner. We don't want nothing to do with you, tax collector. You need to clean up your acts. You, You need to come to God. No, God, as the good shepherd that he is, he goes after the sheep. He was after the sheep. The Bible says this, Romans 5, 6, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and he died for us sinners. The Bible says God demonstrates his own love for us in this. So while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Colossians 2, 13. The Apostle Paul speaking to the church in Colossae, he says, you were dead. Because of your sins and because your sinful nature had not yet been cut away, then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all of our sins. <clears throat> God made you alive with Christ. It was the initiative and the work of a loving God who chased after you is basically what Paul is saying here. If you were with us when we were in, I think it's in Luke chapter 5, there, the, the story begins, Jesus is going into the town of Nain. And he's greeted there by a funeral, prose- funeral prose- procession coming out of Nain. This old, you know, widow, sobbing. She's lost her only son. He's laying there in the coffin as they're heading to bury him. And Jesus, having compassion, he raises him from the dead. Now, what happened with that man who was dead in the town of Nain? Did he clean his life up? Did he, did he you know, hey, let me get right so that I can... No. He was dead. They were going to bury him. Jesus raised him from the dead. And listen, this is, this is the love of God, and this is what he wants to do in our lives. That maybe here today, you are outside of a saving faith in Christ. Maybe today, you haven't been walking with the Lord. Maybe today, you've been deluded in thinking, oh, I believe that Jesus is God, but there's been no surrender in your life. There's nothing other than an abstract, you know, intellectual belief. Oh, yeah, he is God. But, but there's been no surrender of your life to the Lord. There's been no born-again, resurrecting new nature in your life. And religion would teach you, look, you got to get your act together. you gotta, you got to dot your I's and cross your T's, man. you got to start cleaning yourself up. you got to help some old ladies across the street. You know, you got to do some good stuff so that, so that God, you know, he'll, he'll, there'll be something redemptive about you. No, there's nothing redemptive about you. The only thing redemptive about you is that God loves you. And, 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 it's, and, and the Bible's clear. We're all sinners by nature and by choice. We've all sinned, fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And the Bible says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And, and so, so, listen, What the Lord is saying to these Pharisees, to these scribes, he's saying, God loves you. And it's it's not about performance. It's not about, hey, there's two groups of people. Look, there's only one group of people. And the group of people are, hey, look, if if you're breathing, you can fog a mirror. You know, (laughs) you got a pulse. God loves you. 
And he sent Jesus Christ to die for you. Listen, what he wants the focus here to be on is, hey, the joy of the Lord is in saving us. And there's several implications here we got to keep in mind. One of the implications here that we got to keep in mind is that, you know, if you're a believer, if you're somebody who's invited Christ to be your Lord and Savior, and I'm talking about salvation and things of salvation, and you go, well, you know, that's me. I've already done that. Like you're preaching to the choir, PT. Like, I, you know, been there, done that, said the prayer. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I bought the T-shirt. And I would say, okay, cool. But hear about the joy of the Lord where you're concerned. In Hebrews chapter 12, and, and there's debate about who wrote the book of Hebrews. I think it was the Apostle Paul. But at any rate, the writer of Hebrews, whoever it is, begins chapter 12 by talking about how we're expected to run our race with endurance. And in the very next verse in 12.2 you know, he, he, he's, he's saying, you know, with, in, with the understanding you're running your race with endurance, he says, as you do so, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, here it is, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Understand, you and I are the joy that was set before Jesus when he died on the cross. Those that would receive him as Lord and Savior. Those in this room who have received him as Lord and Savior. Those who in, hopefully, as the invitation goes out today, and I will give you an invitation to respond to to the call of Jesus Christ today. And as the, the days go forward and the years go forward, as long as our Lord will tarry, the joy that was set before Jesus is those who would hear his message. I love you. I don't want anybody to perish. I don't want anybody to go to hell. God doesn't send people to hell. People send themselves there by rejecting Jesus. But Jesus, he chases us down because he loves us. And so, listen, the the joy of the Lord, one of the implications is, hey, if if you are, are somebody who's received Christ, look, you're the joy that was set before Jesus to endure the cross in the first place. Another implication of the joy of the Lord in saving is for the lost. That, listen, if you are outside of a saving faith in Jesus Christ today, you need to understand that God loves you. And and he loves you so much that he's going to constantly pursue you. You being here today, you hearing the word of God, you hearing about God's love. This is Jesus pursuing you. This is not Jesus like these religious leaders saying, I don't want nothing to do with you. You're damaged goods to me. You better clean yourself up before you can come to me. No, this is Jesus saying, You're precious to me. I love you. Jesus has been called the hound of heaven. There's a beautiful poem. It was written back in the 1800s. Much too long for me to read on a Sunday morning. But, but, you know, it's all about Jesus like a a hound that would pursue the prey. He pursues us relentlessly in love. John Stott, in his book, Why I Am a Christian, says, I'm a Christian because I was relentlessly pursued by the hound of heaven, Jesus Christ himself. But the implication Jesus has in mind here of of the joy of the Lord in saving, as he's talking in context, he's talking to these self-righteous religious leaders. They don't have an understanding of God's heart for the lost, that they're precious to God. And, And so this is what he's trying to address. See, they had scorn for Jesus. Notice again in verse 2, what did they say? What was their condemnation of Jesus? They said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. They meant that 
as a scornful statement. But listen, what Jesus is saying, that's nothing to be scorned of. That's something to be celebrated of, you know? Because the the issue is, in Jesus' day, if you sat down and had a meal with someone, and this is what they had a big problem with, that if you shared food, basically the, the act of sharing food was a very intimate thing. It represented oneness. And so if, if, if we both are eating of the same food, and I'm putting my hand in the dish and you're putting your hand in the dish and the same food is going into each of our bellies and that food, our body's then assimilating into our cellular growth and, and all, it was like, yes, you're, you're symbolically one. And you're partaking of this one dish and growing together. And so it was a symbol of oneness. And the, rep- the pious religious system, they didn't allow for that, but God's system does. That's, that's this beautiful picture. Hey, this man receives sinners and eats with them, becomes one with them. You bet he does. Because Jesus desires that none should perish, but that all should have everlasting life. And Jesus loves you with a love that this world knows nothing about. Certainly a love that the pious religious system knows nothing about. Jesus saves sinners. He receives sinners. And you can become one with him. And as I said today, I'm going to give an invitation and you can become one with him. By God's grace, in in our first two services, the, the first one today, our service last night, we've had people responding, saying, Jesus, I, I want to respond to your love. I want to receive you as Lord and Savior. And the Bible makes it abundantly clear. No man comes to the Father except for the Spirit draws him. And so what's going to happen today, it's not a product of me talking you into it or my eloquent words being, you know, factoring into it. It's just a matter of whether or not God's speaking to your heart. God's speaking to your heart. And those of you that know Jesus Christ, even now as we're, as we're continuing through the message, you can be praying. For those here even in this room, those who will hear this message online in the weeks and months to come, that they might come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. See, the Apostle John said this. He said, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. God wants to have fellowship with you, to know you intimately and personally and for you to know Him intimately and personally and to be set free from your sin to be made a new creation in Christ to have hope and to have cleansing and to have everything in your past forgiven and the hope of eternal life and so emphasizing this point Jesus he tells them this parable now he wants to really double down on this so he's going to tell them now a second parable and it's the exact same lesson read with me he says to them in verse 8 or what woman Having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is, and here it is, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who Repents. This is a repeat of the same lesson, just a different illustration. The coin represents lost people, and the woman represents God. And will you notice that, that you know, there's some very valuable lessons for us as a church today, okay? I want you to see very clearly, because we, being the body of Christ, being the hands and feet of Christ, we have marching orders. How are we supposed to act 
as those who have been saved by God. I mean, if Christianity was just about you getting saved, then the Lord wouldn't leave you here on earth. You'd, you'd go, oh, I want to be saved. And God would say, everybody out of the pool. He'd take you up to heaven, right? But what's he do? No, he wants to make disciples of all the nations. And the way God has set it up is that once you get saved and your life gets transformed, then he wants you to now be a light to those who are in darkness. And so what do we see with this woman? The first thing we see is that she has a heart for the lost, right? She has a heart for the lost. This coin is precious. It's a, it's a picture in this story of the people who are lost and are precious to God. And she has a heart for the lost. Secondly, how does this woman respond? What's she do? She lights a lamp. She sweeps her house clean. And thirdly, she searches, And this is exactly what the Bible says that we are supposed to do as as those that are part of the body of Christ, right? The Bible says we are to let our lights so shine before men that they see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. The Bible says that rather than be judgmental like the Pharisees and the scribes in our story here, rather than be judgmental, no judgment begins in our house with our conduct, right? Peter said that in 1 Peter chapter 4, judgment begins with the house of God. And thirdly, what do we see that this woman does? Well, we, like Jesus, like this woman, we need to seek and to save that which is lost, right? That's what she does. She sweeps her house clean, and then she goes looking and searching. Here's here's the point of application. (coughs) Are you looking and searching for the lost? (coughs) Do you have a heart for the lost? See, I want you to take note. And James Morrison says this in in his commentary. I'll put it on the screen for you. He says, One of the first things to arrest us powerfully is the worth of single souls. (coughs) It was one sheep the shepherd went to find. It was for one coin the woman searched the house. See, one soul is precious to God. The soul that that he has placed in your workplace, the co-worker. That one person, that one neighbor, that one family member, that one friend that he's placed in your life, in your circle of influence. They're precious, and this is how we are to respond. Letting our lights shine before men, letting judgment begin with our conduct and our character, and then having a heart to seek and to save that which is lost, to search for that which is lost. And so Jesus here, he's sharing two heartfelt joys that God has for mankind. We've looked at the joy of finding. Now, we're going to see the joy of returning, and we're going to see this in the third parable that Jesus is now going to tell. And this is that famous parable that, that we all know about, the parable of the prodigal son. It says, Then he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me, see the way that it worked in this day culturally was that when if a father had two sons, the older son got two thirds of the inheritance, and the younger son would get one third of the inheritance. And sometimes, when the father was getting near to death, he could put his affairs in order and he could apportion his belongings before he died. There's no indication that the father is ill here, and yet the son, the younger son, comes to the dad and he's like. Uh, hey, I, you, you're, you're not looking like you're going to kick off, but I want to get out of here, so how about, you know, give me my inheritance? And so he, the father, divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, 
the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country. He's like, peace out, I'm out of here. And there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. What is prodigal living? He's party on, Wayne. I mean, this is what this guy's going out to do. He's going out to party, and his his older brother's going to have an accusation against him later, and we're going to see that part of this younger son's partying days, literally spending his money on hookers. You know, this is what he goes out to do. But when, verse 14, he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. If you're inclined to taking notes in your Bible, right next to that verse, you could write, the world will always leave you in want. Every time you turn to the world to satisfy your hungers, your appetites, it's always going to leave you in want, wanting more. And then he went and he joined himself to a citizen of that country. So here he is, he's lost money, he's ran out, but, he, but the party is not out of him yet. The, the, the stupid fight of his flesh is not out of him yet, doesn't yet wake up and go home to his father, he will, but he's still looking to the world, so what's he do? He joins himself to a citizen of that country, and he, the citizen of that country, sent him into the fields to feed pigs, to feed the swine. Which, you know, for a young Jewish boy, this was the epitome of defilement. But he's in the world, and he's all in, and it's eating him alive, and so this is what he does. Verse 16, and he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. Picture of sin at its lowest, right? I would eat, I would eat the pig slop. But when he came to himself... I told you about Bobby J and his decade long of being into methamphetamine, and that's his testimony. He says, God came into my life and I came to myself. And so God, you know, allows in this parable, allows this kid to hit rock bottom, and he comes to himself and he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. He doesn't, he doesn't say, oh, I'm, I'm going to arise and I'm going to go to a self-help group. I'm going to arise and I'm going to go explore my inner child and see, you know, what happened and get no worldly sort of answers. I'm going to go to my father. And I think maybe today the Lord might be saying to some of you that you need to arise and you need to go to your father. And he says, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose. This is my favorite verse of this story. He arose and he came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and he had compassion and he ran and he fell on his neck and he kissed him. And in the Greek, it means he smothered him with kisses. He just repeatedly kept kissing his son. And I envision this, Dad. It says, when he was still afar off. And you know, you, you put yourself in that dad's shoes and your son is out there. And some of you, maybe you got prodigals right now. And you know what I'm saying is true. That this dad, man, maybe he found that place on his property where he could see the farthest down the road. Just the farthest pinpoint of where the road kind of rounded the bend. And he's like, I'm watching for that. I'm watching for my son. I'm watching that corner. When's he going to round the corner? When's he going to come home? And this day comes. And you can imagine that dad, he's like, is it? 
Is it him? It's him. It's him. And runs to this guy, embracing him. I'm just so glad you're home. He's hugging him, kissing him. And the son said to him, now the son launches into the thing he said he was going to tell his dad. You know, I'm going to go and I'm just going to say this. So now he launches into his speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And verse 22 comes along, and the dad doesn't hear any of that says, but the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Significant. Slaves, which this guy said, I'll just go be a slave in my father's house. Slave didn't own sandals. They couldn't have footwear. The dad says, you're not a slave. You're my son. Put sandals on his feet. Just so beautiful. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. And here we see the heart of God, this beautiful picture of the heart of a loving father. And you know, we see that in in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, I'll put the New Living Translation uh, up on the screen for you. It asks the question, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory, it's ours through Christ who loved us. And I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Hear that today, folks. Nothing can separate you from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky tomorrow or even in the powers of hell can separate us. I'm sorry, no, no, no power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God which is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you, Lord. God loves you. And so there's joy, but not everybody shares this joy. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. By the way, let me just tell you this up front. Everybody reads the parable. Everybody knows the parable of the prodigal son. Everybody thinks that the parable of the prodigal son is about the younger son. It's not about the younger son. Yeah, there's a beautiful picture there. There's a wonder, it'll preach all day about God's love and about how he receives the lost back. And yes, all of this is true. Understand the context here because Jesus is talking to these Pharisees. And so the Pharisees, this older brother is a picture of the Pharisees. And so he says in the story, his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and he asked him, what's going on? What do these things mean? And he said to him, your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your, bro- your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry. And he would not go in. And therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. And so he, the, young, the older son, he answered and he said to his father, Lo, these many years I've been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as, notice how he addresses his brother, as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he, the father, said to him, Son, And in the original language, this is the most intimate term that he could possibly have used. It's child, it's my boy. 
It's, it's the heart of love. He goes, son, my boy, you're always with me. And all that I have is yours, which is true. The younger son already received his, his one-third inheritance. Everything I got left, son, is yours. And it was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. So what Jesus does here, he brings the story full circle right back to the scribes and the Pharisees, right back to their hardened hearts. They can't rejoice in the redemption of the lost. They had a saying, according to William Barclay, he says that there was a saying during this time that there will be joy in heaven over one sinner who's obliterated before God. But Jesus said in verse 2, he says, no, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Sorry, that's in verse 7. But at any rate, this is the heart of God. He's like, no, that's not your heart. You, it, this isn't the way that, that I am. This isn't the way that I feel. And in every single one of these parables, here as I close, listen to me carefully. We'll just wrap it up right here. The message is clear. Be happy when the lost are found. Be happy when they repent and they come home to the Father. You know, sometimes we can see, you know, something happening. And we can be like a Pharisee and kind of scur- you know, scrunch up our nose and go, oh, and find all the fault in it, you know? Um, Ronnie Feist, he, he rides for Metal Militia. And uh, he got saved. Do you know how he got saved? He was, he was shacking up with his girlfriend. They were literally laying in bed, and he watched some televangelist who, if I told you the name, everybody would scoff and say, oh, that guy, you know, who is that guy? You know, he's, he's, he's got all, he, his doctrine is whacked, and it is. You know, his, his cheap gray, he never, you know, it, you, could, you could shoot holes in the guy all day long and his theology all day long. But what happened? This man laying in bed on that TV program gave his life to Christ, got radically saved, for real. Now, you, you, could, you can go, oh, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be like this Pharisee and say, well, that, that, that's going to happen. Or, so, you know, some person, relative in your life, you know, they, they give their life to the Lord, and you're like, oh, great. You, you, make a, you make a mess of your life. You spend your whole life just, you know, making a mess of it. Now you're going to come to the Lord. Well, praise Jesus, man. They come to the Lord. And so, so the, the issue is, man, we need to rejoice when people are coming to the Lord. Charles Spurgeon said this. My last quote. No, we're done. He says, the truth here taught is just this, that mercy stretches forth her hand to misery, that grace receives men as sinners, that grace deals with demerit and unworthiness and worthlessness, and those who think themselves righteous are not the object of divine compassion, but the unrighteous, the guilty, and the undeserving are the proper subjects for the infinite mercy of God. In a word, that salvation is not of merit, can't earn it, It's by grace.